please remain standing for the reading of God's word. John chapter 3, verses 22 and following. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anan near Salim, because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, A man can only can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard. But no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would not only give us uh, understanding of this passage, but that we would be changed by it. That we would see when we are self-promoting, when we are measuring things by how it pleases us, instead of surrendering our lives to one who gave his life for us, that we might inherit eternal life. Father, we pray this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. There is no place for rivalry in the Christian's life. Now, that doesn't mean there's no place for rivalry at all in certain respects. There's a kind of rivalry that is competition that moves us to do our best. I think of sports, I think of business in this. Uh, The Apostle Paul used Olympic uh, sports as a positive illustration that as the runner would lay everything that hinders aside and press on towards the prize, so the Christian should lay aside everything that hinders and press on to the the prize of, of, of doing the will of God, of seeking Christ and gaining heaven, not by our works, but by following the one who paid for our sins on the cross. 
There's a positive illustration there. Jesus told the parable of the talents about how the one was given different resources and he used them. And it's a business illustration that's positive. I believe in the, the free market, that it's, uh, it, it strives us to do our best in the, in the ideal of a free market in order for you to pay me money, I need to think of a product or a service that you want, that you need. So it's a voluntary exchange. Now in our fallen world, it always is, uh, tends to be corrupted by powers that be, but that's the ideal. And there's a kind of competition that can strive, that make us strive to do our best. And that's, that's positive. But it can go over the edge into a rivalry that uh, produces Anger, rage, malice, bitterness. On the sports uh, illustration, I remember when I was in high school in Chattanooga, we had two boys' schools and a girls' school, Baylor, Macaulay, and GPS. You want to set up rivalries? Set up two boys' schools and a girls' school. Yeah, I was at Macaulay. We had a rivalry with Baylor. And uh, we had a, a football game. We had not competed for 30 years because after the fights between these two rival, after the games of the, these two rival schools, we'd get into fist fights. When I say we, it's collectively it's the people 30 years before. But they finally decided my senior year to let us play again. And in this game, I had been moved my senior year to play. To, it was a defensive end. But we didn't have enough players that rotated me in at offensive tackle, a position I was not big enough for then. I'm probably big enough for now. And, and I didn't like playing, but they put in a play that was a tackle-eligible play, which meant I would be released to be like an, an end. And near the end of the game, we were behind 9-7, to seven, and they called a tackle-eligible play, and I could catch the ball. We had 14 yards to go on fourth down. And I remember looking up at the lights, and I was doing my best, and I saw the ball coming, and I caught it, and as I was falling down, I could see that I was past the first down marker. I was celebrating. I had done my best. I learned from sports something about doing your best, and then also submitting to the authorities because the referee came and took the ball and moved it back about a yard because he said my knee hit the ground, and the ball was back there. I, said, I keep thinking the ball, I, I want to see the films. I still want to see the films. <laughs> but it, it, I don't dismiss all the positive aspect of competition that makes you strive to do your best, whether in the sports or the business world. I was all prepared to talk about uh, Tennessee. You know, I prepared for it to be a lesson in humility because the University of Tennessee, I grew up in Tennessee, and they had a horrible season. Then they beat South Carolina yesterday. Whoa. Uh, but at the same time as I was listening you know, to, to that game, I was going back and forth and reading a book called The Beautiful Brain, reading about CTE. It's a brain disease that comes from repetitive concussions. And it, it, it was a sad thing to read. Uh, about the things that happened. And it, it actually, one of our own, Ray Easterling, a, a former NFL player, um, developed this disease from repetitive concussions, and it took, took his life. So in this fallen world, uh, there are all sorts of dynamics, all sorts of layers to things. It takes wisdom to know when is competition striving and making us strive to do our best. And it's a positive image for how we should strive to follow Christ. And when is it rivalry that makes us hate the other school, hate the other person? 
There's no place for rivalry in the kingdom of God. No place for rivalry between churches. There's a time when we can think, how can we do our best and we can learn from other churches? But there's not this rivalry when we're on the same team in the kingdom of God. There's no place for rivalry within a church, between the members of a church. We have different uh, places and roles to play. Some are leadership roles, making decisions. Others are, are not. There's no place for rivalry between leaders. It is a great affliction to a church when there's rivalry between the senior pastor and the associate pastor, between the senior pastor and the music director or others engaged in ministry. And one of the great blessings of God is we, we do not have that uh, here at Sycamore. There's this great partnership in ministry. What a blessing of God. This passage, passage speaks to the issue of rivalry. And one more point before we turn to the passage itself. I'd like to get at the heart that's underneath the rivalry that's within our souls. There's a kind of rivalry that goes on between in, in, in each of our hearts and minds. And it's a rivalry between our old nature and our new nature. It's a rivalry between the way we naturally are and the way God wants us to be. It is the rivalry between what pleases me and what pleases God. We need to recognize that within our own souls. In fact, it can be a, that way of framing it can be a way for you to share uh, the gospel with others as, as you would initiate spiritual discussions with those that might be you're pretty you know, far afield, not that interested. You have, you, the first thing you want to do is, is to promote their interest in spiritual things. Last week I had the opportunity to talk with a couple of people, and uh, I didn't know where they were coming from. I didn't want to be the preacher that would just put them in a corner and, and make them feel like they were uh, pinned. Uh, and, and so I, I began the discussion this way. What's your religious perspective? That's such a neutral question. It just kind of drew them out. They said, I believe in God, but haven't figured out much uh, about that, what I believe to be right and, and wrong and what I disagree with about the, the church, etc. I haven't investigated uh, much. And as they put their uh, views out on the table, it became a non-threatening context just to discuss it that way. And then I said, I think there are basically two religious points of view. The one view is what pleases me, and the other view is what pleases God. And then it gets complicated, because on the side of what pleases me, it can range from the criminal that's just the taker and then the one that hurts other people, or it can be the very nice person that what pleases me is to be liked, what pleases me is to be nice. I want to be uh, respected at work, I, so I want to be honest. This is all what pleases me, so you can be a very bad person in the world's eyes or a very good person, but the bottom line is still what pleases me. On the other side, we say, what pleases God, that raises complicated questions too. What is God? Who is God? All the religions of the world get encompassed on that side and you start having to sort out, how do I figure that out? And by framing it that way before them, I was able to ask them, have you ever really investigated what the Christian claims about who God is. You know, have you investigated whether or not they're true? So many people in our 
world today say, I will believe in the religion that's right for me. Do you see what just happened there? They slid from the side of what pleases God back to what pleases me. Which religion pleases me? And in doing that, we place ourselves in the place that only God belongs. We want to be our own God deciding for ourselves what's true, what's right, what's wrong. So we're back on that side. We're not really on the side of what pleases God. It's an interesting way to raise the subject just to spur spiritual discussions. It's been a long time since I've mentioned uh, these booklets to you, but I was able to share the gospel with them by just promoting the discussion and gave them books that we have. There are four little books on the Gospel of John. It divides the Gospel of John into five chapters. It's called Life Issues. And with some introduction that walks people through the gospel, people are actually reading the word of God. Over the years, I have mentioned these, promoted those, and sometimes when you have opportunity to share your faith with someone, you've asked me, "Can can I get some of those books? I'd like to share them. And the idea is to share one book at a time and, and then get with the person and say, what, what did you think? But they're getting into the word of God that way. So I just remind you that we have them. But as I remind you, I do it the purpose of exposing us to ourselves because we are so prone to think the way, the, the natural way, the way of the flesh, what pleases me. And it shows when rivalry comes up. These are John's disciples. These are people that have come out to John, repented of their sins. They are preparing for the Messiah. Uh, John is leading to that. They know a lot. They are already three-quarters of the way there. They're the ones that should be ready to embrace Christ, and yet they're feeling rivalry right now. So if they can, how much can we? You see that? And rivalry is aroused. Let's look at the first paragraph in this chapter, beginning in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, we have to get a little more information about that because at the beginning of chapter 4, chapter 4 frames this passage. I actually think that chapter 4 verses 1 and 2 should be included in this passage. Most Bibles have it starting a whole new section with its own title. But look what chapter 4, verse 1 says. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So that's a clarifying note there. Jesus was leading his disciples. His disciples were baptizing. But the point is, more were going to Jesus than to John. When the Lord learned this, he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Jesus, even Jesus in his own example, did not see the work of John the Baptist as over yet. He was not there to detract from John calling people to repent and to prepare the way for his coming into their lives as Savior, the one who had gone to the cross. So he left so as not to detract from John's ministry. This is Jesus. But it frames the, the issue because Jesus is becoming more popular than John. How would that affect John? And his disciples. Verse 23, back in chapter 3. Now, John also was baptizing at Anan near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. And the NIV, verse 24, is put in parentheses. This is an acknowledgement that John was probably familiar with 
Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels. You get the synopsis of a movie. It's the summary of what happened. The synoptic gospels are summaries of, of Jesus' life, and they fit with each other. They draw from each other. There's much of the same material in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in Luke chapter 3, we learn that Jesus was, uh, that uh, John the Baptist was arrested and put in prison. And Matthew and Mark, when they mentioned John the Baptist, he had already been put in prison. So it was near the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And it seems that John is aware that some might read his gospel and think he's contradicting them. And he's saying, no, 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 I'm not contradicting him. This was before John was put in prison. There was some time where there was overlap in ministry. It's just an interesting aside for you there. But the point is, in verse 25, an argument developed between some, some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. I think the ESV is a translation that translates this, a discussion. A discussion arose. The, I, so I looked it up. In the Greek, the Greek word can be translated from what's fairly neutral, a discussion or a debate or a controversy, you see, an argument. And when you stop and think about it, you think, what was the certain Jew coming out and debating with John's disciples over? This verse says it was about ceremonial washing or the purification. John the Baptist was out baptizing with a baptism of repentance for sins. It was a water baptism, and somebody was criticizing it. And that disheartened John's disciples. You know, it's, it is disheartening. If you're, if you're thinking, does this please me? And you go into leadership in, in any role, any role, whether it's business, politics, or ministry, leadership is always criticized. And in ministry, it can be uh, especially disconcerting because you think, oh, wait a minute, you know, God promises his blessing. But I tell you what, if, if every preacher quit it, when he heard somebody coming in and criticizing his preaching, there'd be no more preachers. Because everybody gets it sometime. Because God keeps us humble. He lets every one of us know you're not the end all to everybody. It's the word of God that counts. And your preaching is like John the Baptist saying, I can only accomplish this, but he's the one that does the work. We're all in his role. But it was discouraging to John's disciples. That's the connection between verse 25 and 26. At first, I couldn't see it because I couldn't imagine that this uh, certain Jew was coming out saying, Jesus is better than John. Jesus' baptism is more important than John. I couldn't see the Pharisees being a defender of Jesus. If it were Nicodemus, they would have named Nicodemus. It was probably just a critic saying to John's disciples, what are you doing out here? The waters of purification are supposed to be administered by the priests in the temple. It's probably something like that. They get discouraged because they're criticized. And then they start thinking, well, not only is, is he criticizing us, but we're losing people. And we're losing them to Jesus. That's the spirit that they come to John with. They came to John and said to him, verse 26, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. See, this is rivalry aroused in people that have 
become followers of John, repentant of their sin, preparing for the Messiah, even recognizing that this is the one you testified about. They know so much. And yet it rises up in them. They're disheartened that everybody's going over to Jesus. So we shouldn't be surprised if we get disheartened and we have that old nature arise up in us and we start thinking in competition with other churches or other or competition rivalry with other Christians within a church or it shouldn't surprise us that's our old nature but John knows how to squelch that rivalry in the most positive way to this John replied a man can receive only what is given him from heaven You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. John knew what God had given him, the position God had given given him. He didn't see himself in rivalry with Christ. He knew that his time would come and go. That's true for every one of us. But he wasn't concerned about promoting himself. He was promoting Christ. And he delighted in that. I don't often read uh, right uh, out of the commentary, uh, but I'm going to this time, and I did it in the early service and put the marker back in the wrong place. So be patient with me as I get back uh, to this. This was beautifully expressed by D.A. Carson about John the Baptist. He said, For John the Baptist to have wished he were someone else, called to serve in a way many would judge more prominent, would simply be covetousness by another name. If we're feeling a rivalry among Christians, it afflicts us all. It afflicts, I'm sure it afflicts RUF campus ministers. It afflicts church planters. It afflicts mature congregations. If we think that way at all, We are being covetous by some other name. If the person he envied were the Messiah himself, he would be annulling the excellent ministry God had given him. Deep discontent over God's wise, sovereign disposition of people and things would in that instance betray not only unbelief and faithfulness, But the worst form of the perennial human sin, the arrogance that wants to be God and stand where God stands. In other words, what pleases me? What pleases me is my own importance. What pleases me is our own success. What pleases me is to have have the following. What pleases me instead of what pleases God? What pleases God allows the ebbs and flows in their lives, whether high or low. The Apostle Paul could go into one city and plant a church that would be strong and faithful. He'd go into another city, and what would happen? He'd be put in prison or stoned and left for dead. Do you find yourself in the position you think, oh, Harry's preaching to the preachers. He's preaching to ministry leaders. He's talking about rivalry within churches. Let's broaden it a little bit. If you're a self-promoter, if you're thinking what pleases me, Guess where it's going to first show? It's going to show in your relationship with your parents, if you're growing up, children growing up in the church, or in your relationship with your spouse, or in your relationship with your children. 
If you think first and foremost what pleases me, that's where it's going to start. And you'll be exposed instead of thinking, what pleases God in this circumstance? How does he want me to respond? How can I love? Going back to that passage in Ephesians, how can I get rid of bitterness, rage, and malice and forgive one another just as God in Christ forgave me? See, you can recognize, you might not think I'm being... I, I'm, I'm being self-promoting. You're not thinking that because that's a negative way to look at yourself. But if you're just really angry, that's a symptom. If you have a deep discontent with where God has placed you, that's a symptom. And what's your bottom line agenda instead of contentment to serve God wherever he places you? John the Baptist goes on to say, verse 28, or verse 29, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. The friend of the bridegroom is, our modern equivalent of that is the best man. And it's such a perfect illustration that John himself uses uh, in this passage that I put it up with the title. No place for rivalry, the best man's delight. The best man of a wedding. This last week when I married... uh, my niece and her fiance, the, the, the groom had two brothers, and he decided that both brothers would be his best men. So I had to, had to do it at the rehearsal dinner, and I asked him in the presence of both of them, I said, which is the best best man? And they both laughed and smiled, and they just uh, they said, we both are, and he's the best man. The groom. They were both rejoicing in the groom. Can you imagine, taking John's illustration, the best man who has some rivalry with the groom for the bride? That would be the worst man in the world. Can you imagine it? But that's essentially what we do when we as Christians who profess to have received Christ as Savior and Lord to to promote him, to glorify him, start rivaling him for the attention, the praise and the honor and the glory that's due him. Or we take credit to ourselves for things he's accomplishing. You see, that's the kind of rivalry that's so inappropriate. John the Baptist got it. He just delighted in the place that he was given. And he said, the joy of the best man When he hears the bridegroom's voice, he said, that joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. Now, Jesus was already God the Son. It wasn't greater in the sense of his being. It was in terms of his presence. John the Baptist was willing to fade into the horizon. He didn't know what was ahead of him. But what was ahead of him, we know, that he faced Herod. He didn't become a wallflower and a wimp. He didn't fade away in that way. Herod called him into his court, and John the Baptist said, it is wrong. You should repent of your immoral behavior in marrying and stealing your brother's wife. And Herod put him in prison. He was afraid of John the Baptist because he knew that John the Baptist in some way was a messenger from God, but he ended up getting drawn into the demand of Herodias, his wife, and Salome, his daughter, to behead John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist gave his head, quite literally, served it up on a silver platter, 
with the contentment of his place in the kingdom. And no wonder Jesus said, no, there's no greater in the kingdom than John the Baptist or all the prophets of the Old Testament. But he said, those in the kingdom to come will be even greater than he. That's speaking of you and me. Wow, you're already in that high position, greater than John the Baptist because you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ has atoned for your sins. You are a child of God, not just promised, you actually are. What higher position could you want? And uh, we've been, Mary and I read uh, Voices from the Past, we're in volume two. And this last week, it, it's been focusing on meekness. And meekness is a, uh, opposed to anger, the angry passion. And it talked about one of the ways we can cultivate a desire for God's will and, and to put off the anger and passion is to realize the treasure we have that comes from the contentment of the soul. When we say, God, thank you, I serve you in the place you've placed me. And the image was that a man could have a ball of gold, solid gold, and then someone ridicule or mock him and he'd be upset at the criticism and throw the ball to get the guy and give up in his anger a treasure beyond, uh, beyond comprehension. Do you have that kind of contentment in your soul? To know the Lord in this way, to be content to glorify him, to wax and wane in whatever stages and ages and positions in life, that is the Christian's delight that cannot be taken away. So John ends this passage with the third, praising the unrivaled son. That's the whole point in the last part. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard. He's just delighting in Christ. You know what his grief is? is but no one accepts his testimony. He's not absolute here. He's done this before. In the first chapter, he said, he came into his own, but his own did not receive him. And then he goes on to say, but those who did receive him, there are the exceptions to that general rule. And he does the same thing here. The man who has accepted it, the testimony of the son, has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. John the Baptist himself and all the prophets before him were given the measure of the spirit for the roles that they were assigned. But Jesus was God the Son. He and the Spirit were one. He had the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. By promoting yourself, by measuring everything or anything by what pleases me instead of what pleases my savior who died for me you become the loser you end up rejecting the one who gives life but if you receive the lord jesus as your lord and savior and promote him and serve him above all you never lose because you inherit eternal life there's no higher position that you could attain than what he gives you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us to recognize the symptoms of this sin in our lives when we are uh, covetous, when we are envious, 
when we're discontent, when we hate others for their uh, blessings, when we uh, have a sense of rivalry between Christians, between churches. Uh, we pray that you would give us a sense of, of exalting and glorifying the one who is above all, the Lord Jesus himself, and that we serve at his pleasure and that in serving him at his pleasure, whatever place he gives us, we know our inheritance is above and beyond anything we could ever grasp for ourselves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.